You're listening to the teaching podcast of The Crossing Church. We exist so that the real you can have a daily encounter with the real Jesus in word and deed. For more information about our church, visit crossingparagold.com. Hey, good morning, everybody. It's good to be here with you. Uh, My name is Adam. I'm one of the pastors of The Crossing Church. If you're new to our church or if this is your first time tuning in, then on behalf of the pastors and members, I want to especially welcome you. And if that's you, I just want to encourage you right now, just take a second and click on that Connect link. You should see that being dropped for you over in the comments section. Take a second right now to click that, fill it out, give us a little bit of information about uh, yourself and your family. And it's just a way for us to know how to love you and serve you to the best of our ability. So, so glad you're tuning in today. Uh, with that being said, if you have a Bible or a Bible app, I want to invite you to go with me to Matthew chapter 11 as we continue in our series that we have titled This Incredible Opportunity. And the idea behind this series is that with every crisis we face, there's always danger and there's also always opportunity. And of course, for the last several months now, we've been facing a personal and global crisis. And in that, there are certainly dangers and yet there are also opportunities. And so what we've been doing for the past several weeks is just pressing into the question of what what are the unique uh, particular opportunities that God is inviting us to and calling us to in this season And this morning, I want to talk about an incredibly important opportunity that we have. Um, So to that end, a few weeks ago, I took my middle daughter uh, and my golden doodle uh, out for a little post-dinner walk. It was a a beautiful Tuesday evening, about 6.30 p.m., and as we're out strolling through the neighborhood, we bump into several of our friends who happen to also be members of our church, and they're out doing the same thing we're doing. They're spending time with their families. They're they're going for a walk, and Mallory Wesley actually snapped a picture and captured this moment, so I think we can show that to you. Um, you see me and, and Susanna, my daughter, and our dog Scout there in the middle, and on the right, you see Matt and Mallory Wesley and their family, and you see Jason and Ashley Nicoli and their family, uh, and then on the left, you see Derek and Angie King pushing a twin stroller with their new twin baby boys, and um, man, it was just such a fun moment. It was uh, it was an unplanned moment, completely unplanned, and uh, we stood there and we kind of laughed and and spent time together, and it felt like you know we've stepped back into another era where life just moved a little slower. Um, and as we stood there, at one point, I asked the question, "Hey, I'm just curious if this were pre-COVID nineteen, what would you all be doing right now in this moment? Like, what would what would Tuesday night?" 6.30 look like for you? And one by one, we began to answer the question. And we said things like, well, I, I certainly wouldn't be doing this. I would be at baseball practice, or I would be probably running through a drive through get some fast food uh, on my way to a ball game, or we would be at gymnastics, or I probably honestly would still be at work. And we just went on and on and talked about this. And in the moment, um, we just kind of stopped and, and, and thanked God for this moment, because In a pre-COVID world, this little unplanned interaction between friends and family would have never happened because, simply, in a pre-COVID world, all of us would have been just too busy. Um, The other night, uh, my wife Carrie and I were looking back on our family calendar and what our schedules were like before the coronavirus, and we just shook our heads. I mean, like, it seems like we had something almost every night of the week. Whose idea was it, by the way, that second graders should play basketball three nights a week? Like, I just protest that moving forward. I'm just not going to do that. Um, 
you sprinkle in a few other commitments, right? A dinner, a meeting, a birthday party. Suddenly, almost every night of the week is full. And on top of that, I, I have work, I have deadlines, I have responsibilities, I have an iPhone. So um, it's, it's always been easy for me to stay pretty busy. And, and not the healthy kind of busy, where you're just pouring your life out for the glory of God and, and the good of others, but it's always been easy, at least for me, to give myself to what Ronald Rollheiser calls pathological busyness, which is an unhealthy busyness. Uh, pathological business is not just that you have a lot to do, it's that you have too much to do. You work too many hours, say yes to too many things, kids involved in too many activities, always on the go, compulsively on your phone. And so what happens is there's no space in your life for your soul to just breathe and just, just be human, just be fully present to the moment, to yourself, to those with you, and especially to God himself. That's pathological busyness. And I'm going to be honest, it's something that I struggle with. And I used to say that as a badge of honor. And now I admit that as a source of, of shame in my life and something that I'm, I'm working on. And my guess is I'm, I'm not the only one in our church or in our city who struggles with this. Um, the reality is we live in a culture of pathological busyness and exhaustion. It's been said you can sum up the culture and the pace of modern American life with three words, overworked, overcommitted, overdistracted. Um, according to the Center for American Progress, Americans work more hours per year than any other cu- country on the planet. And we've been nicknamed by other countries the no-vacation nation because Americans take the shortest paid vacations of anyone in the world. In fact, um, we're the only advanced economy in the modern world that doesn't federally mandate paid vacations and holidays. And that's not to say that employers don't offer them. It's just to say that many of us don't take them. And those of you who do take vacations or a day off, uh, a lot of us tend to still stay in touch with our work through our phones or our computers. And so the point is we're addicted to work. We are overworked and we're also overcommitted. On top of our routine responsibilities, we have countless opportunities and, and choices of stuff to do And most of us just do too much. And so when we aren't busy working and running from one thing to the next, most most of us are just so exhausted by the pace of life that any downtime or in-between space we have, we just fill it up with with distractions, stuff to kind of dull the exhaustion that our body carries and the worry that runs in our minds and the anxiety because we're just go, 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 go. So we give ourselves to these distractions. Social media and Netflix and TikTok is all the rave and um, Snapchat and Candy Crush or whatever games you know people are playing nowadays. And we, 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 we're overworked, we're overcommitted, and we're overdistracted. And so what happens in that kind of world is every space in our life is crammed full with activity. And as a culture, we've lost the ability to just be human, to have limits, to be still, to rest. And the problem is that this has become normalized and institutionalized, so we feel it, like we can feel the exhaustion in our bodies, but, but we struggle to see that this is broken. It's like if you've ever been to someone's house and, and their house has a funny smell, but they don't know it because they live there, and I don't have anybody in mind necessarily. Um, like something about the way that we do life in our culture is off. It smells off, but you probably can't smell it. It's broken, but you probably struggle to see it. 
And at some point, we have to step outside the house we're living in and outside the, the, the system that we're functioning in, and we have to ask the question, how is this forming me? Like, what is this doing to my soul? And a couple of years ago, there were a group of uh, physicians who came together to research and discuss the effects of hurry and busyness on the human mind and body and soul. And one theologian took their report, and after reading it, here's his summary of what this is doing to us. He writes, In spite of all our progress, we are ominously dissatisfied. In bowing at these sacred altars of hyperactivity, progress, and technological compulsivity, our souls increasingly pant for meaning and value and truth as they wither away, exhausted, frazzled, displeased, ever on edge. Anybody feel like that? Our bodies wear ragged, our spirits thirst. We have an inability to simply sit still and be. As we drown ourselves in a 24-7 living, we seem to be able to do anything but quench our true thirst for the life of God. Listen to this sentence. We have become, perhaps, the most emotionally exhausted, psychologically overworked, spiritually malnourished people in history. Now, I know what you might be thinking. Well, we're, we're currently in a season where things have been shut down and, and maybe your life hasn't been the same kind of busy. But as we slowly reopen, here's our concern as pastors. Our concern is that we're going to restart the system with the same old habits. So the image I have in my mind for this is like whenever I have to, my, when my MacBook crashes and I have to reboot or restart the system and it will ask me this question, would you like to reopen all the same programs you were running before? And the answer is no, because that's what caused my computer to crash in the first place. I was running too many programs. And so our, our concern as pastors is that because we're creatures of habit, most of us are going to come out of this and try to reboot or restart the system running all the same habits and programs of pathological busyness. And this is a huge temptation that I'm vulnerable to as well. And so with that being said, we believe this, in this crisis, God is giving us an incredible opportunity to slow down and to rest and to learn a whole new way of being human. With this in mind, look with me at Matthew chapter 11, and let's start reading in verse 28. Here's what Jesus says. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Probably my favorite passage in all of Scripture. And I can't read this passage without thinking about Eugene Peterson's paraphrase in the Message Bible. It's so good. Here's how Eugene Peterson paraphrases those same verses. Are you tired? Worn out, burned out on religion, come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. The message of Jesus is such good news for anxious, exhausted people because it's an invitation to rest. And the questions he's asking are not rhetorical. Jesus is literally from this text asking you these questions this morning right where you are. 
He's asking you, are you tired? Are you worn out? Are you weighed down with anxiety and heavy burdens? Are you stressed? Are you burned out? Or, or are you on the verge of burnout? Like, can you smell that something's on fire? I think, I think my life's about to crash and burn. Like, if that's you, Jesus says, come to me and, and I'll give you rest for your soul. And now let me say this, if you're like me, some of you might be thinking, well, yeah, I tried that and it doesn't work. Like, I'm pretty sure that I've been following Jesus for years, and if I'm honest, I'm still exhausted. Like, I live with this low-grade anxiety, and I carry a sense of fatigue. My mind is constantly spinning and burdened and worried, and and my body is stressed to the max. So help me, kind of help me understand what I'm missing when Jesus says, come to me, and I'll give you rest. And, And here's what we miss in this text. Okay, we, we catch the first part of Jesus' invitation where he says, come to me. But notice, Jesus doesn't just say, come to me. He says, come to me and take my yoke upon you. And then he says in verse 29, you will find, you will discover rest for your soul. And so here's the point. You can't experience the rest that Jesus offers if you don't take on the yoke that Jesus offers. And of course, the question this raises for us, well, is what in the world is a yoke that Jesus offers? Um, a yoke in the first century was, was a piece of farming equipment. It, um, this, this would be something you would use to join two oxen together, kind of bind them together, and it was designed to help them shoulder the load of whatever they were trying to pull or carry. And so with that image in your mind, here's how one scholar describes what it means uh, when Jesus invites us to take on his yoke. He says, A yoke is a work instrument. Thus, when Jesus offers a yoke, he offers what we might think tired workers need least. They need a mattress or vacation, not a yoke. But Jesus realizes the most restful gift he can give the tired is a new way to carry life, a fresh way to bear responsibilities. Realism sees that life is a succession of burdens. We cannot get away from them. Thus, instead of offering escape, Jesus offers equipment, his yoke, that will develop in us a balance, a way of carrying life that will give more rest than the way that we have been living. In other words, when Jesus offers you his yoke, he's offering you a better way, a true and better way of being human. And so here's the big idea, the takeaway that, I, I, that Jesus is inviting you to embrace, and we really want us to embrace this as a church. Here's the big idea. You can't experience the rest of Jesus if you don't take on the yoke of Jesus. And you can't take on the yoke of Jesus if you don't take on the rhythms of Jesus. That's what it means to take on his yoke. Like to put another way, as we've said before, if you want to experience the life of Jesus, the life he offers, which is a life of rest and joy and love and peace, you have to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. To take on his yoke means you embrace, you you join yourself to him and you move through life at his pace. Like you're yoked together with Jesus and you embrace his way of being human, his pattern of what it means to be a human being. You embrace his rhythms, his habits, his practices. And and notice that Jesus says this is something we have to learn. I love that. I'm really comforted by that. In verse 29, he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me what it means to be human. So there's tons of grace for this. But the point is, you have to learn this. I mean, the point is, if you want to experience rest and the life that you were made for and the life that your body and soul aches for, 
then you have to learn this, to slow down and rest. And we have an incredible opportunity to do that in this season. The question is, what does this look like on a practical level? And on that note, in the time we have left, I want to mention three practices that we see in the life of Jesus for slowing down and unhurrying your life. Like three things that we have to practice in order for us to take on the yoke of Jesus and experience the rest he offers. First off, if you're taking notes, is the practice of Sabbath. And uh, this word Sabbath is a word that is lost on us. The concept is really lost on us. Uh, The word Sabbath comes from the Hebrew word, which means to stop, but it can also be translated to delight. And so Sabbath refers to a 24-hour period where humans get to stop and just do nothing related to work and just rest and delight in God's presence and his goodness in all of creation. Uh, For my family, this rhythm is typically about 5 p.m. on Friday to about 5 p.m. on Saturday. For 24 hours, we shut it down, we rest, we enjoy God and all the gifts and the life that he has given us. Now, where do we get this practice? If we go back to the creation narrative in Genesis 1 and 2, we read this. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. And so on the seventh day, check this out, God rested from all his work. He rested. Then God blessed the seventh day and he made it holy. He set it apart because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. So God stops and he rests for 24 hours from all his work. And this, this becomes known as the practice of Sabbath. And then you see all throughout the Old Testament, this repeated command, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Keep that day set apart. And then you see this practice in the life of Jesus woven into his weekly rhythm. And so when Jesus says, take my yoke on you and learn from me what it means to be human, join your life to mine, he's saying, you also embrace this same rhythm of Sabbath. I love this line in in Mark 2.27. We read Jesus say, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And the part that we need to focus on here is Jesus is actually saying, look, the Sabbath was made for you. It was made for you. It's, it's a rhythm that God has built into the fabric of creation, of, of working six days and resting for one. And God has given it to us as a gift and a way of slowing down the overall pace of your life. Uh, Walt Brueggemann is a biblical scholar who has this, this line where he says, people who keep Sabbath live all seven days differently. And what he's getting at is you can't go 100 miles per hour all week and then slam on the brakes and skid and crash into the seventh day and expect to feel rested. If you want to actually enjoy the seventh day, you have to work hard in the other six days, but you also have to learn to slow down the overall pace of your life in those other six days. And that's what Sabbath is designed to do. It's a yoke. It's, it's, a, it's a way of life. It's like a governor on your life that helps you slow down the speed of your life so that you can live and work in the other six days from a, a place of resting in God's grace. And, and, and maybe at this point, some of you are thinking, well, I take a day off. Um, <laughs> Sabbath isn't the same thing as a day off. And a lot of guys have written about this and even gotten a little snarky about it. Here's a couple of them. Uh, Pastor John Tyson says it like this. On a day off, you may not work for your employer, but you still work. A day off is typically when undisciplined, unsabbathing people get to all the chores they never got to in the week because they're abusing their lives. It's the catch-up day. 
necessary, but not the same thing as Sabbath. Eugene Peterson, whom we quoted earlier, actually calls that a bastard Sabbath. Uh, He says it's the illegitimate child of God's true intention for the Sabbath. And so the biggest difference between a day off and a Sabbath is how you spend your time. Um, In her book on Sabbath, Marva Dawn says, every Sabbath should be marked by four movements that will allow you to rest and enjoy God. Ceasing, renewing, embracing, feasting. And so the first one is ceasing. It's how you spend your time on Sabbath. Ceasing, that is you stop working. You put it down, no cheating, no checking your email, no grabbing your phone. You put it down. You put the work down. You come to terms with the fact that the work is never finished and you're just not that important. So you just trust God that he can, he's big enough to run the universe without you and you just stop. It feels incredible. Um, and the reason you stop is so that you can do the second movement, which is refresh and renew. And the key question is, what can I do for 24 hours that would renew my soul? Um, and, and, and that word renew is really important. That's the key word because the problem in our culture is we know how to relax. We don't know how to renew. Um, binge watching Netflix with your favorite snack is incredibly relaxing, but renewal is more than just relaxation. Um, think about renewal as deliberate rest, thoughtful rest, intentional rest. It's doing things that help you connect and feel close to Jesus. They help you feel his love and his delight and his pleasure. It's, 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 it's doing those kind of things. And that looks different for everyone. You know, for me on Sabbath, sometimes that looks like uh, extended time reading, going for an extra long run, uh, grabbing my guitar, playing guitar, trying to write some songs, playing basketball with my family, doing yard work with my family. Um, I feel very close to God in all of those spaces. And it's more than just relaxing to me, though it is, but it's refreshing, like it's renewing to my soul. And you have to find what that is for you. What can I do for 24 hours that would renew my soul because it gives me a greater sense of God's love and God's presence with me? So first you cease, then you renew, and then you also embrace, she says. Sabbath is a time for you to embrace your limits, that you are not God and you can't do it all and you have to rest. And there will be a significant temptation, because there is for me at least, for you to think like, but I, but I have these responsibilities and I, I do have things I didn't get done. And so I've got, I've got to do just this one or two little things on the Sabbath. And, and, and what you have to realize is like, God is, the, God is the creator and the savior of the universe and he rested. And you and I are not more important than God. So if God can rest, you can too. And so it requires you to embrace your limits. And most importantly, Sabbath is a time for you to embrace your true identity in Christ. I love this line from A.J. Swoboda. He says it like this, quote, Sabbath is a scheduled weekly reminder that we are not what we do. Rather, we are who we are loved by. I love that. Because Sabbath is a regular interruption to the, to the lie that you and I hear all week that, that your value comes from what you produce or accomplish. And it just reminds you that in Christ, your love for who you are, not what you do. And you can just slow down. You can put it down. You can rest. You can accept and rest in God's love for you as your true identity. And you can let that begin to carry you into the next week. So it's a, it's a time for you to cease. It's a time for you to renew. It's a time for you to embrace. And lastly, she says, it's a time for feasting. 
Um, there's a psychological principle called pleasure stacking. It's where you just stack, you pile on one pleasure after another. And Jewish rabbis would actually encourage this on the Sabbath as a way of feasting on God's goodness. Um, Dan Allender says it like this, quote, Sabbath is the holy time where we feast, play, dance, have sex. By the way, uh, the rabbi said that if you're married, you should have sex on the Sabbath. Just throwing that out there. Uh, sing, pray, laugh, tell stories, read. Some of you are ready to practice Sabbath. Paint, walk, watch creation in all its fullness. Like some, sometimes in our culture, God has a reputation of being a killjoy and like he doesn't want you to have any fun. But the reality is God is the source of all pleasure. He created you with taste buds and, and senses and, and made things with you know, bursting in color and made you able to feel and experience pleasure and delight. And Sabbath is a time where you just get to just enjoy God and his goodness and all this stuff. And you get to have a right relationship with creation. You get to enjoy all this stuff. You get to practice enjoying all this stuff God's given you without having to worship it. And you get to learn how to do that and carry that posture with you into the other six days. All that to say... You can't experience the rest you long for without taking on the yoke of Jesus. And you can't take on the yoke of Jesus without taking on the rhythm of Sabbath. It's absolutely crucial for your soul. In addition to that, a second practice that we see in the life of Jesus that leads to a life of rest is the discipline of knowing when to say yes and no. And this is huge. Um, there's a scene in Mark chapter 1 where after a long first day on the job as Messiah, Jesus gets up early the next morning to spend some alone time with the Father, and his disciples come and interrupt him. And we pick up the story in verse 37. When the disciples found him, they exclaimed, Jesus, everybody's looking for you. And Jesus replied, let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also, for that is why I have come. So he traveled uh, throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons, he left. And so in case you didn't catch that, by the way, that's, that's Jesus for no. That's how Jesus says no. Disciples come to him, Jesus, quick, everybody wants you. Come, you got to see this. Everybody needs you back in town. This is an incredible opportunity for your ministry. You got to capitalize on this. And Jesus says, no, I won't do that. I need to say yes to this other opportunity. That's why I've come. And this is a pattern we see all throughout the life of Jesus. You know, often we talk about all the good stuff Jesus did, but we never really talk about all the great things Jesus did not do. All over the Gospels, we see Jesus saying no, and, and not to bad stuff, but to really good opportunities. Um, Jesus did not heal every sick person he encountered. He did not raise every dead person. He did not feed all the hungry beggars. He did not meet every expectation that was put on him. Jesus knew that in order for him to fulfill his God-given identity and calling, he had to know when to say yes. And more importantly, he had to master the art of saying no. So when Jesus looks at you in Matthew 11 and says, if you want to be rescued from burnout, if you want to be rescued from pathological busyness, come to me, take my yoke upon you, let me show you how to be human. What he's saying to you is you have to master the art, just like Jesus, of saying no. And this is incredibly uh, challenging for us because we live in a point in history where we have more choices and opportunities than ever before. Uh, Peter Drucker, uh, who's a business writer and a follower of Jesus, says this, in a few hundred years, when the history of our time will be written from a long-term perspective, 
it is likely that the most important events, check this out, uh, the most important event historians will see is not technology, not the internet, not e-commerce. It is an unprecedented change in the human condition. For the first time, literally substantial and rapidly growing numbers of people have choices. For the first time, they will have to manage themselves and society is totally unprepared for it. It's not bad that we have so many options and opportunities. That's a good thing. It just means that we have to learn in Drucker's language how to self-manage so we don't get destroyed by it. Put another way, we have to have self-control. We have to have the maturity and the discipline to know that we can't do it all. And so like Jesus, we have to master the art of saying no. And again, because this is something we have to learn, Jesus says, how to do, let me just real quick give you some practical guidelines for when and how to say no. And these are not all necessarily coming from the Bible, but it's conventional, common wisdom that I'm certain Jesus would have no problem agreeing with. So here you go if you're taking notes. Some guidelines for how to say no. Number one, don't get sucked into the tyranny of the not urgent, not important. Uh, Most of you live with a tyrant in your pocket called an iPhone. And there's an endless stream of notifications that all seem urgent. Like just pester you all day long. Respond to me, respond to me, respond to me. Most of those are actually not urgent. On top of that, your phone gives you dozens of options that are just not that important. Um, Think of these as time wasters. Apps, games, social media. Again, I I enjoy those things too. Those things are not the devil. But the devil can certainly use those things to steal your attention away from God and from the things that matter most. And so the principle is don't don't let the things that are not urgent and not important keep you from saying yes to investing your time and energy into the things that really matter and give purpose and value to your life. Like spending time with Jesus, living on mission, cultivating your marriage, shepherding the hearts of your children, serving the body of Christ and on and on and on I could go. And, and the point is to do that, to say yes to those things that matter, you have to learn to say no to the things that are not urgent, not important. Number two is a guideline. We have to care more about God's approval than man's approval. I can, I can give you verses for this one. Um, listen, there, there is an intense emotional pressure to say yes to every demand and every request that's put on you. And yes, we're called to love and serve one another and to be generous with our time. But remember that loving and serving someone and pleasing someone are two different things. Um, I'm just going to say this. The hard truth is you can't please everyone and you will disappoint somebody. Um, You can't say yes to everyone. You can't meet everyone's expectations. Jesus certainly didn't try to do that. And we have to take on his yoke and learn from him. Number three, uh, guideline for how to say no. We have to realize that every time we say yes to something, we're saying no to something else. Listen, there are 24 hours in a day, eight of which you need to sleep. There are seven days in a week, one of which is the Sabbath. That's all you have and life is short. You can't do it all. And so every time you say yes to one thing, you're saying no to something else. The question is, what are you saying no to? What important thing are you saying no to? Because you're saying yes to something else. I read an arresting article this week that was titled Plot Twist, Coronavirus Saves Childhood. And um, it's, it's this article, it's, all, it's this family 
talking about how the shutdown and the quarantine has, has given them an opportunity to realize that saying yes to so many things, saying yes to having multiple kids play multiple sports, saying yes to overworking, saying yes to all these extra opportunities was causing them to actually say no to playing with their kids, to getting to know their kids, to nurturing their marriage, to sitting down around a table and actually having a meal with one another and with friends, to actually talking to and getting to know their neighbors, to going on family walks and so on and so on. And so they talk about how the busyness they had before the coronavirus was actually robbing them of life. And, and the point is, as we reopen, you don't have to restart the system with all the same old habits. We have an incredible opportunity right now to put on a new yoke to learn new rhythms and new habits of rest and slowing down and being more present to God and to our relationships and to the things that matter the most. And that will require you to learn from Jesus how to say no, how to embrace your limits and how to say no, sometimes, oftentimes, even to really good opportunities. So if you want to take on Jesus's yoke and you want to experience the rest he offers Um, You have to embrace this rhythm of Sabbath. You have to embrace this discipline of saying no. And the last practice I want to mention in the life of Jesus that's crucial if you want to experience rest, the most important, is the practice of silence and solitude. Um, There's a story that I'll summarize for you in Luke chapter 10 where Jesus goes to Martha's house for dinner. And uh, Martha's sister Mary is there. And Martha is running around like a chicken with her head cut off. She's so busy, anxious, doing all this stuff. But her sister Mary is just sitting still, quiet. She's at the feet of Jesus, just listening to Jesus, just being with Jesus. And at one point, Jesus says gently to Martha, quote, Martha, Martha. You are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. Here's the takeaway. A life of busyness and distraction, a life of saying yes to too many things, a life of hurry will cause you to miss out on the one thing necessary that your soul needs in order to be truly alive, which is to be with Jesus to be connected to Jesus, to have relationship with God himself. And busyness cuts you off from the presence of God and starves the soul of the the one thing that you need to run on, which is this intimate connection with God. It's what you were made for. You know, it's been said that that love is spelled T-I-M-E, like love is spelled time, because it takes time to cultivate love and cultivate intimacy in relationships. And I think about like what would happen in my, to my marriage if Carrie and I never spent alone time together. Like if we never got alone and just spent time together, if we never had time to just talk in private and share our, our hurts and, and our, our deepest fears and our hopes and longings and dreams, what would happen if we never spent that kind of time together? And the answer is, if we didn't spend quality time together, then our marriage would suffer if not eventually die. And the same is true of your relationship with God and even to your soul. And so this discipline is so crucial. Spending time alone with yourself and with God in the quiet. And throughout the centuries, this has become known as silence and solitude, considered the most important spiritual discipline of all. And right now, most of us have an incredible opportunity to build this rhythm into our daily lives. It's, it's not that hard to take a little time each day just to be alone in the quiet with yourself and with God. 
And if we really believe Jesus, that this is where you get the good portion, like this is where you tap into and receive the one thing necessary that your soul needs in life, then we will slow down. We will say no to some other stuff and we will carve out time for it. So to sum all this up, um, we would never say the coronavirus is a good thing. It's a bad thing. But God is in the business of taking bad things and, and, and creating good things, of taking death and, and resurrecting and creating life. And we believe that in this crisis, God has given us an incredible gift, an incredible opportunity, not just to reboot the system, but to upgrade the system and to run our lives completely differently moving forward, to rearrange our lives around abiding in Jesus, around being with Jesus, around the one thing necessary, being in his presence. And if we don't do this, if we don't take advantage of this opportunity and accept this invitation from Jesus, at least two things are on the line. Number one, your soul is on the line. I mean, it's, you know, it's been, hurry, it's been said that hurry is the great enemy of the spiritual life. It, it destroys your relationship with God and your relationships with others. And so the way you fight is by taking on the yoke of Jesus and adopting his rhythms and his way of being human. Your soul is on the line. And not only is your soul on the line, but I would argue that faithfulness to Jesus and his mission is on the line. Look, the, the church is called to image God to the world and to show the world what life looks like when Jesus is king. But the reality is Jesus does not look beautiful. He is not glorified. He is not seen as desirable. If his followers are, are just as exhausted and stressed and worn out in the exact same way the rest of the world is. And therefore, th there has never been a better time for us to take on the, the yoke of Jesus and the way of Jesus than right now to, to actually learn this because the world, our city is full of people who are broken, burned out and hopelessly lost and looking for rest. That being said, I'll close by leaving you with a question. <clears throat> How is your life working out for you? How's life working for you? Are you tired? Are you worn out? Are you burned out? Are you weary? Are you weighed down with heavy burdens? If that's you, I have good news for you. Jesus Christ is the source of rest. And he invites you to come to him right now, where you are, whoever you are, whatever you've done, come to him right now and receive his grace and his love and find rest for your soul. And, and, and Jesus has done all the real hard work, like all the heavy lifting, in order for you and me to be able to experience this rest. Jesus came. He did what we could never do. He, he, he put the weight of God's expectations on his back, and he met them. Like he lived a perfect, sinless life that you and I failed to live. And then he did all the hard work on the cross of giving his life as a sacrifice and dying the death we deserve to die so that he, our sin can be paid for and we can be forgiven and we can have life the way it was meant to be lived with God. And so Jesus doesn't promise you an easy life, but he does promise you an easy yoke, a, a life of rest and joy and peace and love in his presence. It is the life that your soul is crying out for, that you're hungry for. It's the life that you long for and were made to experience. And all you have to do in order to experience this life is come to him and, and right now where you are, come to him and surrender to him and take his yoke upon you. That is the incredible opportunity we have. That is the invitation right now for all of us in this moment. That being said, let me pray for you.
Father, I just want to pray right now that, um, that this word would not return to you void. God, I pray that this word would sink deep into the psyche of, and the heart of everyone who is watching and listening. I pray that little seeds of truth would take deep root and begin to grow. I pray that you would awaken us to the hunger in our, in our, in our guts for Jesus and for, for connection with Jesus, to be in his presence. God, I pray that you would just let the clouds begin to clear and, 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 and help us to see clearly what it is that we were made for, the one thing necessary. God, gently lead us into this life with you. Um, bring us to a place of surrender. Bring us to a place of trusting in you. And I pray, God, that, um, that you would do it for the sake of our soul. You would do it for the sake of, um, of, of the mission that you've entrusted us. Do it for your glory. Do it for our good. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.